The promise of something good to come is a powerful motivator. Looking forward to something, though, is sometimes better than the actual experience. Uh, It happens like that when you're planning a holiday. You read the reviews, you scan the internet for the best deals, you book the accommodation and the tours, maybe you buy new gear, and it's the anticipation of that holiday that keeps you going through the last few weeks of work. The promise of something good to come is a powerful motivator. Unfortunately, the holiday often fails to measure up to the promise, doesn't it? Uh, Or there's cooking a wonderful meal. You see the perfect picture in the cookbook. It's a promise that you can make one that looks and tastes just as good. You shop for the supplies, you clean the kitchen in preparation, you assemble the ingredients, putting everything in little glass bowls just like they do on the cooking shows. You follow the recipe exactly and as you work through each step it all looks so good, it smells so good and then you try to present it on the plate the way it looks in the book and then there's the taste. The promise of something good to come is a powerful motivator. Unfortunately, it often doesn't seem to turn out the way it does in the cookbooks or taste as good as it smells. And God gave his people, Israel, the promise of something good to come as well. Around the 8th or 9th century BC, he promised a rescuer, promised a king. He promised a new kingdom with a new peace and a new relationship with God. Uh, They're the promises we remember at Christmas because at Christmas, we remember, we celebrate God keeping all his promises. When he sent Jesus, God became man and was born in a body. But unlike our holidays or our recipes, the result of those promises is every bit as good as the promise itself. In fact, there's even better to come. Well, today we're looking at the promised job description of God's rescuer. What would he do when he came? Uh, It's a description we find in the second half of Isaiah, uh, where God introduces his servant. Uh, And it's a job that involves bringing in God's kingdom. It's a job that involves ruling over a new creation, ruling with justice and strength and equity and peace, a kingdom for everybody, for all nations. But that's the promise. At the time of Isaiah, it's only a distant promise. Uh, We saw last week uh, from the first chapters of Isaiah what the problem was how Israel had forgotten God and rebelled against him and so he'd handed them over to foreign nations to be attacked and ransacked and ultimately to be exiled. But for all of that, God's punishment was was, was just part of God's plan. It was only step one. God's goal was to bring them back and to restore them, not just to the promised land, but to restore their relationship with him. And that part of the plan, the part to do with the rescue and the restoration, that's where God's servant comes in. And so we come to chapter 42 that uh, Malcolm read for us and God is talking and what we see is a, a kind of a presentation. God is presenting his choice, his anointed servant, the one who would achieve his purposes. A bit like when a company board calls a press conference to announce its new general manager or the football coach 
or the football club announces its new coach or new star player. So there in verse 1, God is talking and he says, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. So whoever this servant is, he's got God's authority. Notice that he's upheld and strengthened by God's spirit himself. And he's not just a temporary solution, someone to make do until a better option comes along. He's God's choice. He's the one in whom God delights. He's got God's complete confidence. Well, that's the who. What about the how? How will he do his job? Well, verse 2 says, He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he won't break, a smouldering wick he won't snuff out. In faithfulness he'll bring forth justice. So he's not a tyrant, he's not a dictator, he's not a head kicker. He'll do his job with gentleness and compassion. And that's important when people are feeling bruised and fragile, that you treat them gently. And that was certainly the case with Israel. Uh, They'd suffered a lot, God had punished them and there was still worse to come. But God promises that his servant will treat people with gentleness. Uh, That's the point of those two images, the the bruised reed and the smouldering wick. They're fragile and flimsy. They, They represent people who are fragile and flimsy with barely any life left in them. They're close to death. And there are plenty of people like that around us, aren't there? People who need to be treated with respect and compassion and gentleness. People who've been deserted or abandoned, downtrodden, lonely people, struggling people, struggling with sickness or guilt or abandonment or overwhelming expectations. But God's servant won't break bruised reeds like that. He won't snuff out smouldering candles, which is great news for them and and great news for us. Jesus said he's gentle and humble in heart and he invites all who are weary and burdened to come to him and they'll find rest for their souls. That's not what you expect to find in religion. Most religions are about performing up to a certain standard, otherwise you fail. But that's not Jesus. Jesus is gentle. How are we presenting Jesus to these sorts of people as we deal with them? In our words, in our attitude to them, in our lives? Do we present the gentle, compassionate servant? But it's no good being gentle if you're not going to be just as well. Do you see it there at the end of verse 1? He will bring justice to the nations. To be gentle to everyone means you're a doormat and, and people get away with things. But justice means that you're gentle with the broken reeds but you're firm and uncompromising with those who deserve it, with those who are damaging the, the, the reeds and the, and the smouldering wicks those who abuse and mistreat and exploit and take advantage of them. Because justice towards those who deserve it is part of what it means to be gentle to the broken reeds, 
And so God's servant will be gentle and just, which is a great combination, isn't it? How do you go about presenting that part of Jesus' character in your life? Do we get angry at the injustice we see around us? Will we speak up? Will we stand up for those who can't? Maybe refugees or the unborn? Or do we just bury our heads in the sand and say it's not our priority? Perhaps because we're scared of disagreeing with people or with not being liked? Jesus was gentle and just. Well, that's the who and the how. The third question about the servant is what? What what does his job involve? Well, from verse 5, God's attention turns to the servant himself. Uh, God, uh, rather than speaking to the people, God speaks to his servant. And so in verse 6 he says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I'll take hold of your hand, I'll keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. Well, a covenant, that's interesting, isn't it? A covenant's another word for a promise or a commitment. And so God is saying that his servant will be the means by which God keeps his promise to his people. He'll be the instrument of promise-keeping, the instrument who rescues and restores and renews, just like God's covenant. And he does it by being a light, a beacon, a source of direction and guidance and purity to the other nations. And we see how he'll do that in verse 7. It says he'll open eyes that are blind, free captives from prison and release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. That's how he will act as a light. There are plenty of people like that in our world, aren't there? Not just literal prisons, but people who are trapped, trapped by debt or sickness or addictions or moral choices or guilt or trapped by economic policy that's bigger than them. And there are plenty of blind people as well. Many of them don't even notice, don't even know that they're blind. Not just physically blind, but spiritually blind. They're blind to God blind to eternity and blind to the things that last. Plenty of people who only see the things of this world, things that rust and perish. And lots of people who are blind to the consequences of their choices. They can't see how a decision they make today is going to affect the future, affect eternity. Well, these blind and imprisoned people are the ones God's servant has come to free and to restore. Well, it's a pretty big and daunting, scary job description. If someone said they didn't want to do it, well, you wouldn't hold that against them, would you? And yet God's servant does it willingly. If you flip over to Isaiah 61, which I'll put up on the screen for you, Isaiah 61, we see the servant's acceptance speech a bit like the new coach or the star player or the general manager steps up to the microphone and tells us how he's going to do the job. And as you listen, 
notice all the aspects of the job description that God gave him. Uh, Everything God wants him to do, he will accomplish. So there in verse 1, the servant speaks and says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim freedom for the captives, release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. So who are the people the servant has come for? Well, they're the bruised reeds and the smouldering wicks, aren't they? They're the poor, the broken-hearted, the captives and the prisoners. And so the servant has come to, to free captives but he's not smashing down uh, solid doors or breaking prison bars. It's not military revolution. His job involves words. He's setting people free by bringing good news. Uh, He's come to preach good news, to proclaim freedom. Uh, Verse 2 talks about proclaiming and comforting. So that's how he'll do his work of setting people free. But who is it? Who is this servant of God? Well, there's a hint there in verse 1 where it says, The Lord has anointed me. That's the word for Messiah in Hebrew. Messiah means anointed one. And when Messiah is translated into Greek, it becomes Christ. And so this servant is God's Messiah, his promised rescuer, his Christ. And that was all prophesied by Isaiah. And so God's people waited and waited, waited maybe 700 years. There was a long time between God making the promise and God keeping that promise. But just because that seems like a long time, it doesn't mean that God forgets. Uh, If we jump forward 700 years, it's time for the servant Uh, We jump forward to Luke chapter 2 verse 25. Uh, It's 40 days after the very first Christmas. We're in the temple in Jerusalem and like happened on most days, a a, a one-month-old baby was consecrated to God. But it was no ordinary baby. Uh, Have a look there from verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel The Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts when the parents brought in the child, Jesus. To do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you've prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. God had promised it and Simeon was waiting for God to keep his promise. And God finally did. It took hundreds of years, but he finally did it. He brought his servant, his Christ, And when he did, Simeon could hardly believe his eyes. All of that time and finally 
there in his arms, this helpless baby called Jesus, he was the one, he was the Christ, the servant. And you notice what Simeon says about him. Just what God had promised through Isaiah, that he would save people, that he'd deliver them, that he'd be a light to the Gentiles. That's Isaiah 42. But he's only a baby. So there's still more to come, isn't there, before God fully keeps his promises. If we jump forward another 30 years, the baby becomes a man. Uh, If we turn over to Luke chapter 3, and the man Jesus is baptised by John the Baptist. And as he comes up out of the water, two very important things happen. Uh, Verse 22 says, The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. And both those things should be familiar to us if we've been expecting God's servant. Do you remember from Isaiah 42? Isaiah 42 God says, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight, I will put my spirit on him. So God declares his delight and his love for his servant, for his son and he also gives him his Holy Spirit, the proof of his authority. Simeon's recognised Jesus. God has recognised Jesus with a voice from heaven. Jesus is the one who's God's servant, the one to rescue and restore broken people. But so far they're all just promises, aren't they? How will Jesus measure up? to all of those promises. Will the reality be as good as the promise? Well, in the very next chapter of Luke, Luke chapter 4, we see that Jesus himself recognises everything that's been promised and he takes up the challenge and gives his own acceptance speech. Uh, Luke chapter 4, he's just arrived home after a victorious tour around the country. There's been miracles and healing and exorcisms. He's been relieving suffering. He's been delivering people from all sorts of prisons. Comfort. He's offering comfort for all sorts of bruised reeds. He's already measuring up or keeping the promises about him. And everyone's excited and he turns up to his hometown synagogue one Sabbath and he's invited to read the scriptures and he stands up and they hold him, uh, they hand him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And so Jesus carefully rolls up the scroll until he gets to, you guessed it, the servant's acceptance speech in chapter 61. And he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him and he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Can you imagine that? The Messiah that Israel had been waiting for for 700 years had arrived and he's right there in Nazareth. It's sensational news. 
And it's great news for us too. It's the good news of Christmas because Jesus' job description was about preaching good news. News that opened doors of prisons, news that caused blind people to see and oppressed people to be released. And that sometimes happens in a, in a physical or literal sense when people find out about Jesus, but in a spiritual sense it happens every time someone believes. When Jesus opens their spiritual eyes to understand their rebellion and sin and their need for him, when he leads them to repentance, when he provides the means for their guilt to be removed, for their punishment to be overturned, they see and they're set free. That's the salvation that Jesus comes to bring. It's the rescue that comes through a cross rather than a sword. A death that he dies that we deserve so that we might receive the life that he deserved. Well, there's one final passage in Isaiah that talks about God's servant that I want to look at. Chapter 53. And it describes... Uh, Not the victory and the comfort and the freedom of Jesus, but his suffering. Uh, The suffering of a servant who is so obedient to his master that he will even endure death. Uh, Listen to how Isaiah describes him. Uh, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we consider him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. That's the rescue God promised that his servant would deliver And God and Jesus did it. And so this Christmas, let's thank God for his promises, for his faithfulness and reliability. That means we can always trust him. And let's thank God for his servant, for Jesus, who comes, yes, as a baby, but as a man who delivers on God's promises and who measures up to all of God's promises. He measures up in his ministry now and we can be confident we'll do far more than that into eternity when God's promises are fully realised. Even if there's parts of the world at the moment where it looks like Jesus isn't king, on the worldwide scale, in Pakistan, terrorists are attacking churches. Across the Middle East, Christians are being viciously persecuted. Or maybe on a personal scale, maybe you're imprisoned in debt or sickness or broken relationships, maybe you feel like a a crushed reed or a smouldering wick this Christmas, lonely and confused. But God has promised. He's promised that Jesus will deal with you gently and joyfully and powerfully, that he'll rescue and strengthen and restore you. So keep trusting him. He has kept the biggest part of his promise. So keep 
living out that trust as you look for the rest of his promises. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your prophetic promises through Isaiah, promises of a servant who will rescue, who will govern, who will be gentle and just. We thank you for the gospel descriptions of Jesus who came and who in his earthly life did many of those things. We thank you for the descriptions of his death and resurrection which brings that rescue into even greater understanding, greater fulfilment. And, you're, and yet, Lord, there is still more to come. Many of us are still feeling imprisoned and weak and frail from all sorts of different situations. And so we pray that your promises might be real to us, that Jesus would be real to us, that he would be gentle and humble and restore and set free. Help us to live out that trust in him And help us to live it out in our relationships with others, that we might be gentle and just as we deal with the people around us. For his honour and glory. Amen.